Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Okay, welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We're picking up with the second part of our discussion on beneficiaries. The only way that you can be of any real help to somebody who has the ability to qualify for these wonderful, hugely valuable, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in some cases in value that are available through federal and, and state programs, the only way that you can allow them to qualify for those is to not give them any money. They're allowed to have money available for certain things. Do you know what some of those things are? It can expand to things like gifts for family members and and things like that. I know that's a big one that people sometimes worry about. Travel under some circumstances. Travel under some circumstances. Uh, yeah, gifts. Like I said, I'm trying to think of others. But, Supplies yeah. that they might you might not regard as being essential. We're not talking about food or clothing, but supplies of things that they do during the day. It's uh, it's pretty squishy, so there is room for interpretation. Uh, But the point is, you want money to be available for those things, but you want it to be otherwise protected because if it gets pulled into the the qualification process, your child is cut off from these programs until all this money is spent. Then they have to re-qualify. So oddly enough, you can end up with a bizarre situation, and this has happened, um, not to to Tucker Allen, I'm not thinking of a Tucker Allen client, but it could have happened to, it could happen to anybody's client who doesn't follow these rules. And, and the rule is that if your child, if, if your grandchild, for example, is automatically right now participating in a number of programs related to some sort of handicap, and, and that, that child qualified for those, just so you know, must have qualified for those because of the assets of the parents. So suddenly you leave money to a parent, and sometimes estate planners aren't told about this, about a grandchild, for example. It could have been the estate planning was done before there was this grandchild with a special need. So um, we always, I know Tucker Allen, the lawyers, it's a big deal to find out information about the health of grandchildren. So in this case, and it has actually happened because I knew the person who was the attorney in the case, um, there was this child, the grandchild was involved, was enrolled in a, a school program for special needs and was also getting somebody to come by the home and provide care. And there was additional income that they were receiving. Just a, the, the entire um, uh, health care program of this child was through either state or federal programs. And it was at various things. Um, one was a rehab program regarding the, this child's ability to walk, et cetera. Well, there was this there was this inheritance, you know, grandparent who passed away had the best of intentions but didn't put it in this special needs trust. So, they pass away, there's this audit that's done regularly to requalify which you do when you're on the program, you have to, you know, provide them confirmation that things have not changed from your last application. So suddenly because of these assets and it wasn't a lot, it was like 100,000 bucks. And suddenly this child was disqualified on all these things. So the friends and stuff, the child knew where they were going during the day. I mean, not that they necessarily lose the friends for good, but it's a big disruption. You're no longer in the program. There's no longer that interaction, which was so important. So now they could have kept them in the program by paying out of pocket, but but they would have used up all this money 
pointlessly when this could have all been paid for by federal or state. So uh, either way, any either the thing that happened was was a waste, meaning if the child is immediately re-enrolled uh, and put on a direct pay, that's fine, but it means the 100000 is wasted. Or if you try to use the money in some other way to help the child, and still the child wasn't benefiting from any of those things, so it still wasted the money because the money could otherwise have been available to do those things too. I want to remind you that it's very important to us to get subscriptions. Um, for you to press that like button is helpful, but the subscribe button is the most important thing to us. And, you know, we don't sell a product on here. I mean, naturally, the show is sponsored by Tucker Allen, so we do talk about Tucker Allen. But to be honest with you, the, the efforts that we put into this show is something that is of personal value to us more than monetary, quite frankly. We do love to do it because we think that we're being of great value to, to many of you. Let us know that. Uh, you like us, yes. But the most important thing we look at is subscriptions. So I'm dwelling on this because I don't know what percent, probably less than 2% of your clients have a special needs situation. Well, yeah, yes. But we do prepare for that, though. You can draft a separate supplemental needs trust to to a trust that somebody would set up. And that would... We do recommend that if the, if somebody does have somebody uh, a child or a beneficiary with these special needs that they that they need the specific trust to kind of kind of have a fallback in and contingent planning uh, in every trust that you would set up with Tucker Allen the, uh, for minor children and for any children who would have governmental uh, governmental assistance. We do have kind of just a bare bones supplemental fallback provision in those revocable trusts as well. So it's automatically built in, even if even if you're not told that they expect or they have a child that has such a problem. Yes, correct. Okay, and that that is the way to do it because you just don't know, and and often this money could be applied to a generation of children, meaning like great grandkids, that aren't alive even when grandma or great grandma dies. So. The only good way to do it, the only safe way to do it is what you describe, is to just automatically build it there in case it happens. And it could be that that somebody is healthy one day and then there's, you know, an accident. You know, they they dive off a diving board at a pool and some sort of spinal injury and suddenly they're wheelchair bound or quadriplegic. So they go from day one not needing to qualify for any of that stuff. So, I mean, what a, think about the power of this device of having a trust that can protect this money for the balance of your children and grandchildren's lives. And I'm not assuming you're rich. Remember, this money will accumulate when it's not being paid out by interest or investments, whatever. So you have all these these protections that I've just described, which are powerful without even talking about the possibility of a special needs. I mean, if we put that aside and, and look at the other things, I'm so sold on this idea. I mean, I have it myself. I tell my friends this at dinner parties. I mean, I'm a, I'm a true believer in this, and I think you are too if you've been watching this show. But you may not have known some of the additional things that are available, and this is one of them, is that this built-in mechanism to where, in addition to all the other things I mentioned, all of a sudden something like this could happen where you could be suddenly a, a eligible for a ton of benefits, but only when you're broke. And if this money is immediately available, it has to be spent. 
In other words, if it's not locked up properly in a trust, then it has to be spent for them to be able to get spent. And, and it's a shame because there's a good chance that you, the person who's creating this trust, paid a lot of money in taxes. You know, you have been a giver your whole life. I'm willing to bet that you're in that demo. You've not taken, you've given. So there's very little that you've asked for in terms of benefits from your government. And I know our demo. <laughs> so, and these are hardworking people. These are not, our, our demo is, it, yeah, we have some wealthy people who watch this show, of course, but but most are people who are middle class, who've worked hard uh, to accumulate what money they have. It's a significant amount, and they they want to be careful about preserving it and having it render as much value to the people they care about as possible. So that means that you've been paying a lot of taxes and and you've you've thought you would never ask for anything from this government. But if the time comes that your loved one suddenly needs this sort of care, your grandchild, your child, you shouldn't have any reservations about taking the steps for them to qualify for a federal program because then it's time for you to to receive some benefits through your family. And you can do it. Uh, you just have to create this provision in the trust. Um, let, let's talk about some other things about beneficiaries. Um, are there sometimes disputes between beneficiaries about how the money should be paid out? I'm thinking especially between generations of beneficiaries. I'll set this up a little bit for you. So we have... Let's assume you leave, you have um, $2 million, and you say, okay, I want it paid out, uh, the income paid out to my child for the balance of his life. Plus, you throw in this provision that you mentioned, Ben, about health, education, maintenance, and support. That's a just a buzz phrase that has a lot of, it has some meaning in the law. So that that phrase means that the the trustee has the, the freedom, the discretion to pay out within reason what your son wants. Okay, so your your goal is you want your son to have whatever he wants within reason. So your son has a great life, but you know there's going to be some left. Uh, so you say income to your loved one, we'll assume one child, and what's left um, would go, the remainders will, uh, you may have a different plan. I won't give an example of that. It could be the same plan, uh, which would require money for there to be income. So, so let, let's assume the same plan for your grandkids. Again, if there's a medical emergency, that's not a matter of qualifying for some sort of government program, but any sort of emergency, keep in mind, I want to make crystal clear here, these assets can be available. So you, you don't want to cut your child off to some urgent need. And that's a wonderful thing about it is you have a person, you don't have to rely on a, on a sentence or a paragraph that you wrote to anticipate this stuff because you couldn't. Instead, you chose somebody whose judgment you respect to, to, to make the right decision when that time comes. So that person will have a successor too. So anyway, so in this case, you have a, an amount of money that's available for income, but the expectation among the grandkids is that there's going to be money left for them. So sometimes you will not be surprised to hear there is conflict between the current and the remainder. Talk about that. So this this really highlights why it's 
important to have a, a, a well-written trust and, and, a, and a plan for your beneficiaries because if beneficiaries do fight over, over this and specifically generationally, if it's a grandchild wanting their inheritance and they don't want their, their mother or their father to spend it, um, all the, then that's an, an important as well. We see a lot of this in probate that when people don't have a plan at all, they, they'll go to court uh, and talk and, and have multiple family members contesting where they want things to go. Um, but fortunately, in my experience, in most trust administration scenarios, if a trust is set up and tells the beneficiaries where things are going, people will follow the trust more than they will just assume uh, what they think is fair. Yeah, as you commonly see, as you mentioned, like in probate fights where there's a will. Yeah, and uh, and it also comes back a little bit to the trustee subject we talked about last episode. But the trustee, among their their cardinal obligations, is number one, incidentally, is loyalty. So there can't be any way in which a trustee profits directly or indirectly from anything they do. There can never be any conflict of interest, in other words, between their interest and someone that they're their ward, someone they're to be taken care of, a beneficiary. And and if there is any potential conflict, then just that alone can cause a trustee to be replaced. Just the existence of the conflict, not the choice they made. Let's assume that the, that the conflict exists, but they did the right thing anyway. Um, it can still it still errs against them. Uh, for example, if they choose a business in a competitive bidding situation, their brother owns a business and the brother's not a beneficiary, let's assume. So they're, the, the, the brother, the trustee owns a business and, the, and, and truly the business had the best bid, truly had the best bid. Just the conflict alone can make the trustee have to forfeit whatever gains there might've been in that transaction. So it's a, it's a very sacred duty. But apart from loyalty is the issue of impartiality. And loyalty is number one. Number two is impartiality. And, you, and that's when it's not obvious what that word means. Impartiality means that the obligation to be fair between beneficiaries. And it's easy to, pretty easy to be fair when it says, treat all of my sons equally. Um, with a little more direction, you, you could be fair on that. If there were nothing more than that, it's a little hard to know what, what f- fair is. But when it really becomes complicated is when there's sometimes this conflict between you know, children and grandchildren. So children, let's assume now, are 40. And let's assume you're gone. So children are four, grandchildren are 40, children are f- 70. So... At that point, it could be that taking care of the parents might very well soak up what would otherwise be available to the grandkids. Um, And I think that that's when you have to have pretty good instructions to the trustee. But the trustee's obligation is to be impartial in in allocating assets between that generation and the next generation. Uh, They're called the current beneficiaries and what's called the remainder beneficiaries. Remainder means they take. And the the remainder beneficiaries may get it simply paid out as income in the same way. But but trustees sometimes catch a lot of flack. Another example where you sometimes see tough decisions is where beneficiaries are given income. And you can see why this is a popular remedy. Beneficiaries are 
are supposed to receive all income, uh, except that it turns out that there's a family farm and, uh, and the children uh, want income, but, but the trustee thinks, correctly, let's assume, that, that you, the person who made the trust, the grantor or the settlor, that you wanted this family farm to stay in the family for your family to come use. I can imagine me having some provision like that, where, where it's a house, you know, like a vacation home. But it turns out that, you know, maybe other investments didn't go well. We won't, we'll assume it had no, no fault of the trustee, but let's assume that, that maybe the money is down for whatever reason. And, um, and so suddenly the amount of income that's available to the kids from other resources in the trust uh, are no longer there. So you're down to where this asset this very valuable asset, this is a big case, this very valuable asset is like 80%, 70% of the total assets in the trust. So it doesn't produce income in this example. In the, in the, in the real-life case, it, it did not produce income. So there was this big battle, and the trustee took the position that, look, I'm doing what the, the settler wanted. This is the way I read the trust. And uh, I don't remember the exact language of the trust, but it suggested that that was to be available and that it was a, uh, an important value, purpose of the trust. So they end up in this litigation where the beneficiaries are saying, we're not getting any money. There's no income coming off this. And it was going to all accrue to the benefit of the remainder men. Let's call it remainder men, but it could be remainder women. So that the remainder people, uh, that next generation, well, they it could have been sold at that point. But it caused this conflict, resulted in litigation. And the judge brought the gavel down and sided with the trustee, said, well, it looks like this is what the grantor wanted was for this farmland, this farm to be kept in the family to be used. And instantly, I don't know if anybody was using it, uh, but but it was, that's a, that is a, was one of the cases that really highlighted the duty of the trustee to follow what he thinks is the grantor, you, uh, the grantor's intention, even though it, you know, it probably didn't result in goodwill among the the children. The grandkids were probably going to be happy with it. But these are the things; these are the problems that you can expect. Can you? What else? As we wrap up here, what other comments would you make about about beneficiaries that we need to call attention to? I'll, I'll give another example uh, going off of the family farm example. Uh, we see this kind of conflict, as you were talking about, in blended family situations where maybe oh, yeah. uh, maybe one spouse gets remarried and then they have children with a previous spouse, uh, but they leave, uh, but they pass away and leave all of their assets first to their new spouse. You have their original children kind of in conflict with their new spouse a lot of the time, uh, making sure that they're not spending it down that sort of thing. And this just goes back to your trust that uh, that a, a grantor will want to write their trust out and give their trustees specific instructions to protect that money for their children later down later down the road. Yeah, boy, you bring up a rich topic in terms of we ought to do a show. Uh, Justin, make a note of this. We should do a show on blended families, just estate planning for blended families. It is very different, it, Ray, and, and whether it's trust or certainly wills, I would argue, I think I can substantiate, has produced more conflict and, and, and money for, for lawyers in probate court uh, than perhaps any other family configuration. But 
even with trust, there can be conflict. And, and the point is you can still, though, do it in a way that you not only avoid litigation, I mean, that's a goal, but a better goal is to avoid bad feelings. And uh, sometimes that's hard to do. Uh, but yeah, when, you, when you're deciding among your beneficiaries, you do have to think about how to, how to word their access to money and uh, how much income do you want to give your beneficiaries. Um, some beneficiaries, like if you have children who are already successful, then you may think, well, what I want to do is make it available to my kids, and meaning they can have it if they want it within reason, but you kind of knew your kids, and they're probably going to think, just like you're thinking now, oh, I can leave something for my kids. Well, your kids are going to think the same way. And so guess what? You've given them the ability to not draw. Like you have a provision in your trust where like that first generation, the children of the of the settlor or grantor, they don't have to take the money typically. Do you, you have a range where they can – it's discretionary on the part of the trustee? We have typically, yes, and this this can be client-specific. Uh, they can also have discretion to terminate their own trust as well. Uh, which is kind of which is something different than what we're talking about. And now. when it's terminated, uh, though, it goes into the the trust for the grandkids. It would go. It w- you you could write your trust like that. Correct. Yes. That that you would terminate your trust. It would go into the trust for the grandkids, or go back into the corpus of the trust itself uh, for the other beneficiaries. Yeah, and then absent that, though, if the children just chose to not spend it, they knew it was there. They got all the benefits, the peace of mind of knowing, yeah, I have this money there if I need it. Um, they don't call on the trustee. And um, they pass away, and whatever's in that, whatever's left, their fund, according to the terms of the trust, will automatically fund the trust for the grandkids, and that could be a, according to the same or different terms. Correct. Yes, the, the the kind of the cascading trusts of it, of making a continuing trust, and then for the descendants of your beneficiaries, you also have trust under the same terms as well. Yeah, that that is amazing. That idea that. Um, that the rule against perpetuities, this is a lawyer term. Fortunately, it's not important anymore. It was hugely important for a thousand years in estate planning. I mean, almost a thousand, like 1400 or so is when, when this idea began in England and we inherited. But the rule against perpetuities kind of says what you suspect, perpetuities. It's a rule saying, you can't create a dynasty trust, a trust that goes on forever. And the idea was that it had a there are a couple of things, there are lots of bad things about it, incidentally. It locks up money from commerce. It had, by implications, what is called rules against alienation. That means it ties up assets, it locks them up, and you can't, there's no commerce happening, no trade. Um, it's bad for the economy to, to have substantial swaths of wealth that are locked up this way in families in perpetuity, literally. So very quickly, the legal system and, and of course, the kings of England especially thought, no, I don't think I want them to lock up their money because they, they didn't trust the lords uh, anyway uh, So and the nobles. So they, uh, they had constraints. And, and so there, you could have a trust, but you could have it only go – uh, there's a phrase, a life in being plus 21 years. The whole idea is that you don't get beyond 21 years of somebody specifically who's going to be a beneficiary of that trust. So th- this this rule against perpetuities acquired such complexity with all these brilliant lawyers over hundreds of years developing minute little 
ways in which to interpret it to add a few years. So uh, it became, there are volumes. There were, I think it's probably safe to say there are 500 volumes of legal writing relating to the rules against perpetuities on both sides of the ocean. And I'm just talking specifically about the UK and US. So this was big, right? Big limit on state planning. Well, that went away. I mean, when rule against perpetuities 15 years ago or? Sounds right. Yeah. yeah so uh, you might not have been practicing then. So I, you have to take, I was not. No, you have yeah. to take my word for yeah. that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the rule against perpetuities was this obstacle. But now you can have exactly what Ben was describing. You called it a cascade sort of provisions. There's no limit to that cascade. And you, you may think, oh, that's for people like Bill Gates. No, if you do the math, assume that you're leaving. All right, I'll assume you have a significant amount of money. Let's assume you have a couple million dollars. You could have a million, maybe a little less at this point would still impress you. You take that with your children and a scenario where your children are going to wave off some of the income that they could have. They're going to suggest to the trustee that, that they don't want it, and they, they can have that relationship with the trustee. Um, so it's going to accumulate. Now, imagine that accumulating, compounding interest. Interest rates are going up now. Um, so inflation, you know, you do have a counterforce for the inflation. That's the accumulation of value. So let's assume that your trustee invests it reasonably. Then go 30 years down the road. So your grandkids are getting a lot of money, a lot of money. And now let's assume, and this isn't a crazy idea at all, that, that, those are, that they're responsible adults. They have the money available as they want it. So they draw on it some. Sure, they do. But do they draw every penny out? You might have one who'll do that. So that's that's just one of the, you know, it's divided into thirds at that point, let's assume. So, so okay, so there a third disappears with that grandchild. Well, you contributed a great deal. I'll jump to the conclusion to the quality of that child's life. But you contributed a lot to the quality of the other, we'll call two children, grandchildren's lives too, but not so much in their using the money. You know, they, they use it as they needed it, but but they, they had the peace of mind that we all know comes with having financial independence, and that doesn't necessarily mean you spend it. So all of a sudden, you're down to great-grandkids with a huge pot of money, far more money than you imagined that you would contribute to the happiness of those you care about. But, you know, you, you're in a position to be that sort of patriarch or matriarch in the family with relatively little money. So you may say, well, Joe, that's not very probable. Well, I agree it's not probable, but it's far from from highly improbable. So why not go ahead and write those? Does it cost more to write those terms into a trust? No, we're flat rate. So anything that when you buy a trust package, that's what you get, and we will tailor it however you would like. Yeah. So I mean, whenever you pay for the trust, this is probably true for most trust lawyers, is that most do it, not all, but but you should go to a lawyer who, number one, does only this. Uh, they, do, they do estate planning exclusively. But also go to a lawyer where they give you, they tell you on the front end, this is what it's going to cost. But I'm going to tell you, it doesn't cost you, it, certainly at Tucker Allen, it doesn't cost you any more to go ahead and have these provisions. So why not throw them in? They're free, so to speak, and throw them in because who knows? You may You may be... Uh, able to contribute value in substantial ways to multiple generations, and you didn't think you could because you thought, well, I have this relatively modest amount of money in your eyes. Uh, So think that way about your trust. But beneficiaries, don't limit the idea of beneficiaries as being just your children. I think you can be more ambitious than that and still meet the needs of your children, 
but your children will give them the ability to choose to leave it and let it accumulate. How often do you see that happen? Where, where a child, where children who do have access decide not to pull it all out, decide to leave it in because they want to give to their children what they were given. Oh, it, it happens all the time, and it happens especially with adult children who already have accumulated wealth uh, and want to leave a legacy for their children and, and their descendants of themselves. Yeah. So, and I didn't mention that. You raise a good point is, you know, you can have that'll be added on to what you're leaving, you know, what it is left by probably your children or maybe their children. So uh, it's a powerful thing to be able to influence lives in that way. It's you t- People talk about getting a bang for my buck. You talk about bang for your buck. A bang for your buck is when you can leave money that changes lives for generations, people you care about that you will never know. So that's a good idea to conclude. We could talk a lot more about beneficiaries. Anything else you want to add? I think you've covered most of it. Yeah. Well, uh, so Ben and I will pick up with the last third as we talk about trust. And when we talk about the last third, we want to talk about the assets themselves. So, you know, we have this, there is the settler. I could have done a show on that, but I don't want to do that. That's you. Um, but but so we, we divide into the parts that we have the trustee, we have the beneficiary, and we also want to talk about what's called, I hate to use legal terms, but I use them, but then I'll tell you what they mean. So it helps you be a more educated client. It's called the corpus of a trust. So I want to talk a little bit about ways in which you can handle kind of the corpus of the trust, uh, things you can include and things you may not include, uh, instructions you may want to give the trustee regarding the management of the particular assets in the corpus of your trust, and some of the options of things you can do with those assets. And to do this effectively, I need Ben to join me. This is what Ben does every day. I don't do this now. But Ben does this every day, and he focuses on all you practice estate planning, but you're doing mainly trust. Mainly trust, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tucker Allen does do probate. Uh, We do have clients who usually they weren't our clients or they'd have a trust. But anyway, we end up doing probate. So you can have a trust and you should have incidentally a backup will. So so even people that have wonderful trust, sometimes they'll have assets that they didn't know about that will end up in probate. And so so we do have lawyers at Tucker Allen that do do a significant amount of probate. But with proper planning, um, no asset of yours should have to go through probate. Anyway, with that, we'll wrap up. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements. 